Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is a podcast all about giving players fun problems in the form of board games, solving fun problems while designing the game, and having fun with your real life problems like not being able to pay your rent or being just too attractive, which AJ and I both suffer from daily. What a tragedy. It's a curse. It's a curse and a blessing. AJ, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about elegance and cognitive load. But first, follow up from our previous episode. One quick thing when we were talking about terminology is we defined a lot of genre markers. And one thing I just wanted to say is that there's a lot of fertile design space in breaking taboos, in exploring design space that isn't typically associated with genres. If all Euro games have little theme, then having a game that's very thematic in a Euro is going to catch people's attention. Yes, and stuff like uh, the game I think we were talking about at the time uh, a few episodes ago was That Time You Killed Me, which is an abstract, but also has player powers. And that's, that's not a thing that you see. What? That's, that's wacky. Or Santorini's a better example, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Although That Time You Killed Me has a campaign, which again, not a thing that you see in abstract. So it's kind of taking a genre market from a different genre and plopping it in and creating a, a lovely little hybrid. Absolutely. Uh, I did not take any notes. Uh, so any other follow-up from you? Yes. Um, so this one is actually a write-in from Nate. Friend of the podcast, Nate Wall. Yes. So Nate says, I'm listening to part three of the terminology episode, and I have to mention that I rather dislike the term gateway game. There's this notion that a gateway game must perform two functions. It must be easy to learn because someone who has never played a modern board game can't handle medium weight or heavier games, and it must be effective in transitioning someone from a light game to a medium or heavy game. This completely contradicts my experience. My wife has played over 100 mo different modern board games with me. Same for my mom and other relatives. It doesn't matter how many gateway games I play with them, they are never in their life going to enjoy a Vital Lacerda game or Twilight Imperium or the latest GIF game. Additionally, I've had no problems introducing Twilight Imperium, Race for the Galaxy, High Frontier, and several high strategy abstracts to people who have never played a modern board game. It's not brain surgery. If you have the type of personality that will one day enjoy medium or heavyweight games, then you have the type of personality that will enjoy such games as your first intro to modern games. So I prefer the term casual or family to gateway. Those terms describe the genre much better and don't carry the implicit baggage. I'd also like to add that my guess is that close to 90% of the owners of Catan or Carcassonne in America do not own more than five modern board games total. Those games were not a gateway to anything. I would call those players casual games and the games they like to play casual games. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I disagree with Nate on a few things here. Firstly, I think it is brain surgery. I think that once once you've learned a game, then you can uh, cut someone's head open and operate on their brain and save their life. I think that's just a, that's just a given. Uh, I also, I disagree with this idea that gateway means casual. And maybe that's what we said in the episode. And if so, that's my follow-up. We shouldn't have said that. Gateway for me is, is a descriptive thing, not a prescriptive thing. So your, like, your gateway game is the one that introduces you to other games. Whether or not that's a casual game, whether or not that's a, a complex game or a, a Settlers Catan style game, for me, a gateway game is the game that got you into the modern gaming hobby. And I think in that episode, both you and I mentioned that Twilight Imperium was our gateway game. Mm -hmm. yep. So if you say, well, hang on, how can Catan be a gateway game if 90% of people are in it didn't go into the hobby? It's just not their gateway game. I think that if, if you look at it from the other side, people who did get into the hobby, which game brought them in, I think you'll find Catan and Carcassonne right at the top of that list. 
Well, that was uh, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> so that saves some time. <laughs> Shouldn't have thrown over to me first, then I got to snipe it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I think I think that what Nate's saying um, in terms of the way people do colloquially describe gateway games, I think that is apt. That what Nate is pointing out is that just because a game is light doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good gateway game. And some people, even if they play gateway games, aren't going to move in. I think that the common use case of the, of the term is generally speaking used for lighter games that are less complex and that sort of thing. But even if you look at Twilight Imperium, I think one of the markers of what I would define as a gateway game in, in terms of that context, though I, I do like the way that you, you put it earlier, would be that it's something that's not as cerebral. It's something that someone who doesn't have the experience with games doesn't need to have in order to get into them. If you've played Risk and Catan, a lot of the concepts in there are going to carry you through Twilight Imperium. There's actually not that much in Twilight Imperium that's like really complex or esoteric or difficult to grok. I think those sorts of concepts might be what we want to focus on as opposed to as opposed to something more abstract like weight. But even then, uh, Bonanza is a very popular game with people who literally don't play any games other than Bonanza. So certainly there's exceptions. And like Nate says, any game can be a gateway game for someone. I wouldn't call that one a gateway game then. If, if they don't play anything other than Bonanza, then it's not a gateway game for them. Right, right. It's, uh, it, it's most US presidents are white males. But hang on, that can't be true because I know lots of white males who aren't US presidents. It's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the cause and effect, uh, descriptive versus prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, so off of Nate and onto other things, did you know, Peter, that this is our 10th episode? And <laughs> that's a big deal because I was told before we even started our podcast by, um, by Gabe from Board Game Design Lab that the vast majority of podcasts will die before the 10th episode. So this is the one to celebrate. And that's the end of Fun Problems Forever. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh... <laughs> That was my last note. I was going to say I'm done with the podcast. <laughs> um, I actually do have one more tiny little thing. And that's if any of yeah, you please. like to play uh, games on Steam, we now have a curator profile on there where we put up games that we recommend. Uh, slash, I put up games that I recommend because Peter only plays one game on Steam. <laughs> what do I play on Steam? Oh, Halo. I thought you meant Tabletop Simulator. And I was like, <laughs> I- I'd recommend Tabletop Simulator. I think it's a very good game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to see some cool games that I like, feel free to check that out. Cool. I'm excited to see what you recommend. On to the episode proper. Let's start off with just like a... a quick and dirty definition of cognitive load and elegance because we have touched on these before but as we've said before we want to commit to making this a little bit more accessible for people peter you want to give us a quick and dirty definition yeah cognitive load is how much mental work you are doing how much effort you have to put in to get anything done and how much you have to carry in your head especially elegance is a little harder to define but the most common and probably the best definition is how much strategic depth a game has compared to how few rules it has. So the fewer rules and the more depth and the more elegant a game is considered, I would say. I think those are great quick definitions there. And you can see right away why the two concepts are so closely linked and why they're both going to come up this episode. This episode in particular, I'm going to talk a ton about Magic the Gathering because, first of all, it's a game that I know very intimately, both sort of inside and out, both as a player and also from listening to literally hundreds and hundreds of episodes of Mark Rosor's fabulous podcast, which we'll link in the show notes. 
Mark Rosewater being the head designer of, of Magic and has been for decades at this point, I think. Yes, and so there's a lot of things that Mark has talked about that are challenges for Magic the Gathering because Magic the Gathering is arguably the most complex game that has ever existed. They needing to get new players into the game to sustain their growth, they need to concentrate a lot on complexity and how to lower the barrier of entry, lower the cognitive load, and increase the elegance of the game systems. For sure, yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult challenge because you they're sort of dealing with as well as the psychographics we've talked about before. They're dealing with like got to make this fun for new players and fun for people who've been playing for thirty years and everyone in between. Mm-hmm. The first thing I want to start off with is different types of complexity. And these ones are straight from Magic the Gathering. There's comprehension complexity. And comprehension complexity is essentially when you're trying to just understand the game itself. The barriers here are things like very verbose text boxes on a card, where you pull out a card and there's three paragraphs of information to tell you what the card actually does. Or when you have a 30-page rulebook for a light dexterity game, and you're just trying to wrap your head around what's going on, it's difficult to understand all the information. And it's not because it's a weird concept, it's just because the information isn't presented in a clear and concise way. You're getting a lot thrown at you. Exactly. This is most common when you're being introduced to a new genre, or there's an obtuse rulebook, or the rules or text on cards or abilities are just very verbose. A big factor in this one too is how intuitive stuff is. And I'm, I'm sure that this is something we'll talk about later as well, but I play a lot of prototypes. I play a lot of prototypes. And the ones that I struggle with the most are the ones where I have to go, wait, hang on, why does doing this do that? Actually, let's use Royal Blood as an example. So you and I are currently working on a game called Royal Blood. And we had a play test a few weeks back, testing out a combat system within Royal Blood. We just tested the combat system standalone. Everyone, including you and I, struggled with it, even though we designed it, because the way that you attacked someone was not by moving to their space. You had to move into space next to them and then use a separate attack action. And it seemed intuitive at the time of design, but when we were playing it, there was a lot of like, I, I, just, I just want to go here and fight this person. And you're like, well, no, you can't go there and fight this person. You have to go here and fight them from across a, a line, basically. Mm-hmm. That's actually, yeah, the next type of complexity, intuition complexity, and that's a great example of that. And one thing is, it's easy to get lost in your own design. Like you said, in our heads, that was the most, that was the easiest way to understand it from our system, because what we were trying to do was have simultaneous combat. A good way to have simultaneous combat is to have it so that you know what the state is going to be when you take those actions. But as we found out, that wasn't the intuitive thing. And so even though there was something that we had to do that in design felt like it would be unintuitive, it actually turned out to be a very intuitive thing, which was decoupling the position of units from movement. So now units can move straight through other units. If you want to uh, move into a space, you can just walk right past the opposing army, which seemed like it would be very unintuitive, but because of the level of abstraction that the game is at, it turned out to be a complete non-issue. Another thing with comprehension complexity is you can hide it in the later stages of the game. You've talked uh, in our last episode about how in Providence, you don't actually have access to everything that's in the game. You have to build your region of influence outwards in order to be able to access all the different spaces. And so what that does is it reduces the decision space. It reduces the cognitive load. Similarly, in Seven Wonders, they have more complex cards hidden at the third round of the three-round game. I played a... I went to a real-life playtesting event on Saturday for the first time in... 18 months. That was very lovely. And I played a a very good game. Um, 
which the name of which I cannot remember. It was a game about little artisan dragons, basically. And there were six types of dragons. There was, uh, let's see if I can remember them. Leaf dragon, plant dragon, gardening dragon. Or maybe that was plant dragon. Uh, bread dragon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there were six types of dragon. Clearly, I couldn't remember them all. <laughs> <laughs> and every single plant dragon had the same action. Every single meat dragon had the same action. Every single bread dragon had the same action. But there's a big deck of maybe, let's say, 100 of them. You shuffle this deck, you deal them out, and I might get two bread dragons and a plant dragon. You might get a plant dragon, a bread dragon, a meat dragon, etc. And every single dragon, like I said, every dragon of the same type had the same ability on it, but that each of them was listed on the card. So I would look at my hand and I'd be like, ah, this dragon does this and I read the ability. This dragon does this, I read the ability. This dragon does this. Oh, hang on, I've read this ability before. Oh, that was the previous one. And then as well as that, a lot of these dragons end up on the board. So by the end of the game, we had, I think, 40 or 50 dragons face up on the board. And even though there were only six types... Even though every single meat dragon was identical, looking at this board was completely overwhelming. <laughs> I'd look at the board, I'd be like, oh, I can't keep track of all these. There's only six types, and I knew the six types because through the game you're using them over and over again. I suggested getting rid of the text from every dragon, having a little reference card that has, here's what a meat dragon does, here's what a bread dragon does, here's what a plant dragon does, and then just putting the meat bread plant symbols on the dragon and cutting all of that text. I think, I think this relates to the first one you said, which is comprehension complexity where even though I understood what was happening, the fact that I felt like I had to read every single card, even though I knew what they all did, really made the game feel way more overwhelming than it was. That dovetails really nicely into the next type, which is game state complexity. This can be a situation where you're overwhelmed just by sheer visual components. There's too much stuff on the board to be able to parse it, but it can also just be in situations where there's too many different abilities on the board, too many different factors. This type of complexity comes up really often in really heavy euros, you know, Lacerda games. This can come up in chess. Personally, I can't possibly comprehend chess because there's too many combinatorics after just a few moves of of just so many different moves that you could make and then your opponent could respond to so many different moves. And I think a really good example of this too is the video game Slay the Spire, which is a single player digital deck building game. But in it, you can get these relics, which are basically like passive abilities. They're always in effect. And by the end of the run, you could literally have 30 of them. And keeping track of all of those in combination with the cards that you have could be really overwhelming for people. One of the big struggles for designers is that we all have strengths and weaknesses. And we tend not to notice our strengths. That sounds a little weird, but let me, let me give you two examples. Sentinels of the Multiverse is designed by Christopher Bedell and, and a few other people, but he's, he's kind of the lead designer on it. And that man is a human calculator. You give him a sum, he can do it in an instant. And he can just track huge amounts of numbers in his head with no problem whatsoever. So when he's designing a game, he just assumes that everyone can do that. And so there have been various builds of games of his that I've played where it's like, no, Christopher, you, you cannot expect other people to be able to like look at this long string of, of variables that all multiply and, and divide and, and add and subtract and do that in an instant. Like everyone else will have to pull out a calculator and do that. Whereas because he's a human calculator, he could just at a glance do that. And so if, even Sentinels by itself, if you play some of the expansions, especially, you'll quickly find yourself doing these like elaborate <laughs> maths, which some people really enjoy. And it's, it's that way because Christopher can just do that without blinking, without thinking at all. A much more relevant example to me is Village Pillage. Do you want to quickly hear? Summarize Village Pillage. Sure, yeah. So Village Pillage is a light borderline take that game, but the idea is it's always out thinking what your neighbors are doing. You have your own village and so do your neighbors in sort of a between two cities vibe. You're going to just be interacting with the person on your left and the person on your right. 
And so you're trying to pick the type of effect that's going to beat whatever they play. It's got a rock, paper, scissors dynamic, but it's a little bit more robust than that. If your opponent on your left is going to play something that generates resources, you'll probably want something that steals some of those resources. And versus if you think the person on your right is going to attack you and try and take your stuff, you're going to want to block. It's got a lot of these levels of like outthinking your opponent and choosing the right moment to take your opportunities for the stronger actions that leave you more vulnerable. Well said. It also has this slight hand building element. That's the part I want to talk about. So you st everyone starts with the same four cards. And then as the game goes on, you can buy more cards from the center. And the way we do it in the final product is you just deal out four cards. When someone buys one, another one comes out. Very simple market mechanic. At one point, we had a big issue with the game, which was that we didn't know how to resolve ties. And so we ended up sending it to uh, these developers who, who we work with, the Stevenson brothers. And they came back with a great solve for the ties and that all got fixed. But they also had this mechanic that they, they were really passionate about where instead of a deck of cards to add to your hand and then four in the market, they wanted to deal out all of them. So they wanted to have a row of four and then under that another row of four, under that another row of four, under that another row of four oh and have gosh. all the cards out. And when, when it's your turn, you can buy from any column and you can just buy the, the bottommost one. And that way you could see for the entire game what's coming up. They are very passionate about cutting luck out of games and, and Village Pillage is a game with almost no luck. So their, their mechanism for breaking ties was if you're tied, no one gets to go basically, which was too negative. We end up changing it to a coin flip, which <laughs> as people who really dislike luck in a game, they were not, not crazy about, but they understood that, you know, it's our game. And so... I couldn't understand this idea of like dealing out all the cards. And it wasn't until I, I worked with him for a few more years that I realized that David Stevenson especially has no upper limit to how much information he can just process. So he would look at that and he'd be like, ah, yes, cool. Now I can make every decision that I need to in the game. Whereas I would look at that and just be completely overwhelmed and it would make the game look much, much, much heavier than it is. And I would find it really jarring. I also have worked out while I'm watching a film, I can't have subtitles on because I just can't stop reading the subtitles. So if I'm watching a film with subtitles, I'm reading a film, which is not the experience that I want. So I will turn subtitles off, turn the volume up and, and watch, you know, the, the images on screen. And so it's different types of brains and different types of strengths and weaknesses. So if you are very good at comprehending a lot of information, then your games will probably be too much for some other people. There'll, there'll always be people who are at the same level as you. But I really dislike a lot of information. So I try to make mine very visually elegant whenever possible. Well, an important thing too is knowing your audience, right? I'm not trying to speak down to what David did for his suggestion there, but that's clearly like a personal preference thing, right? Like that's something that would have improved the game for David, but your audience isn't David. <laughs> your audience is families and kids specifically. And you're right, like that amount of information would be completely overwhelming for the majority of your target audience, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about next episode, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was really funny because he couldn't see that other people couldn't process information the same way as he could. Same way as Christopher Dell is sometimes like, what do you mean people can't do this math? It's very simple math. And it's like, well, it's yes and no. <laughs> and the big thing there is um, combinatorics, right? Like, I think, I think if I was to say, like, the biggest thing that you could consider that would reduce cognitive load, it would be to reduce the combinatorics that people have to deal with. If uh, in, in Magic, there was a creature that could tap to prevent one point of damage. And that just seems like such a such a safe ability, such such a easy thing to understand. But when you have a board state where you have six creatures and your opponent's choosing which creatures they want to attack with, knowing that you could add that extra point of protection to any one of yours, the combinatorics of what they could do and what your response would be just get completely unwieldy. And again, part of this is just choosing your battles, you know, knowing where you want to have complexity in your game, where you want people's mental effort to be put into. And where it's worth it, because if people are putting in extra mental work, they had better be getting extra payoff in, you know, per, in a reasonable proportion to that as well. 
Uh, combinatorics is that just combinations but fancier i don't know if i know the word. yeah it's, it's just the number of combinations basically gotcha have you ever heard the concept lenticular design mark rosewater talks about it all the time i've never heard anyone else use it i think i've heard it in the context of mark rosewater talking about it <laughs> it should be more widely adopted i actually love this idea basically the idea is to consider how something looks to a new player and an experienced player and make something that uh, both of them can get something out of. So the idea came from those um, those like holographic pictures where like you tilt them yeah. to the one side to see one thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the idea here is to create things that have elegance, that have a high depth with a very low complexity. And a really uh, interesting example that he brought up was talking about how creatures that are in play already have a lot of mechanics. You can attack with them, you can block with them. That's already a lot of stuff for players to keep track of. So keeping abilities off of the creatures while they're in play is a big push that they made when they started making these connections and realizations. What they started doing was pushing abilities for when you play the creature, you get an effect, because that's a big moment. Yeah, play the creature, I get my effect, and then you kind of have a creature left over. But now it's like a blank card. You don't need to worry about what it says anymore. And a, an interesting sort of further step to this was talking about how you can take this concept a little bit further and do it wrong as well. I, I appreciate him talking about this pitfall. There was two creatures he gave as an example. There's a creature that when you play it, you gain a few life points. And he said, this is a very good example of lenticular design because typically you have it, you'll just throw it out and you gain a few points of life and it's cool. But more advanced players might think, you know what? I want them to think I'm on the back foot. I don't want them to realize how much life I actually have. I'm actually going to hold on to it for a little bit longer and then play it later to surprise them after they've overcommitted. His example of a bad lenticular design is the same idea. It's a creature that comes into play, but when it comes into play, it destroys an enchantment, which is a type of card in magic. And the reason that why that's a bad lenticular design is because when pro players have it, they'll just play it out if the opponent doesn't have an enchantment, and that's fine. When poor players are playing with that card and the opponent doesn't have an enchantment, they're just going to hold on to it because it says that it's going to destroy enchantment. The creature itself is weak if you're not getting that effect. And so they're going to hold on to it and feel like they're missing out on something until you will actually play enchantment, which your opponent may never even do. One thing I've become increasingly aware of in myself lately is how highly I value efficiency. So this relates to game design in that when I'm designing a game, I want everything to do as much as possible, which in some ways is very good game design. Sometimes I take it too far and I make the game worse because I'm trying to do that. But also when I'm playing a game, this is why I'm so attracted to Euros, because Euros are all about like being as efficient as possible. So I was playing Istanbul, which is one of my favorite games on the iPad this morning. And one of the mechanisms in Istanbul is when you go to a place, you get to fill up that resource. And so I had two options. I could either go to the red one or the green one. And I had one red resource. Now, in every other way, it made more sense to go to red. <laughs> But I was so irritated at the idea of wasting action, I ended up going to green just so I would not not get one fewer resource than would be maximally efficient. And at the expense of like overall game efficiency, <laughs> I took the more quote-unquote efficient action. I took short-term efficiency over long-term efficiency. There's a subset of magic cards that have an ability on them called Kicker. So you can play them normally, or you can pay for the Kicker cost and you get a little something extra. And a little something <laughs> extra isn't even much. But yeah, you'll see people lose the game with a card in hand, refusing to play until they can get the full value of the kicker on it. That's it. When you're when you giving that enchantment example, I was like, oh, I would I would not be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to play that card <laughs> because it would be so inefficient. Maybe if it won me the game that turn or something. But yeah, man, it's funny when you learn your own drivers and how that affects your game design and also your game play. 
and then be like, okay, but not everyone is that obsessed with efficiency. So you can put that in and it's not the end of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Last type of complexity is strategic complexity. So this is basically trying to understand what a good strategy looks like. For me personally, I literally just do not understand the strategy of chess. I do not understand the strategy of a lot of abstracts because they, they're just so alien to the way that I think. I don't understand how taking a move in chess of like moving a, a knight on turn one, I don't understand how that gets me closer to my goal. And for a lot of people, these types of things creep up all the time. Sacra Arms, my favorite game, is a phenomenal game, but no one on planet Earth, I'm convinced, has understood what the hell is going on in their first game. <laughs> and like for me, I think it wasn't until probably my third play that I was like, okay, like I get it. I think I think I've got some strategic understanding. And I remember even when when we played, there's a turn where you were like, AJ, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Should I shoot at you? I'm like, oh no, you you think so because that would lower my life total, but that would actually be a terrible decision to make right now. You should you should just pass the turn and do nothing this turn. And that's just such a weird, perverse thing. It's kind of like an intuition complexity, but it's different because in this case, it's trying to use the tools that you have that you completely understand, but the game is telling you to do things and you're not sure how the actions you take get you closer to actually winning the game. Yeah, it's an interesting one because that, you know, that, that's the essence of game design is to incentivize winning behavior, which should line up with fun. But I tend to, I think we've talked about this before, I, I try to design games without victory points. That's one of my general design goals. I find it a really interesting challenge. And so when you're designing a Euro with no victory points, victory points are your, your sugar that you can, you know, your sugar that you can sprinkle on food for kids to eat. It's, oh, I want people to do this? Cool. I'll give them victory points if they do this. When you take that tool away, suddenly you have to work on a whole different level of, okay, I want people to be doing this. How can I get them to do this without just being able to lay out a, a trail of victory points for them to follow? Yeah, that's very, very cool. I, I think um, I think victory points can definitely be a crutch. And I think uh, you with your own like little personal design challenges, <laughs> that and um, oh, what's the other thing that you just mentioned last episode? Um, oh, trying to make all your abilities icon-based. Yes. <laughs> Those are very noble pursuits. It's the efficiency thing I was talking about earlier. Like, yeah, in the short term, they make it interesting, but in the long term, I might just be <laughs> crippling myself for no real, no, no real advantage. <laughs> And I think strategic complexity can be, there's some really interesting cases that can come up with it. There was one time when I was playing a game of Hearthstone with my wife and she had just started playing the game like a month before and she never really played games before then. So she really just doesn't have, didn't have a good grasp of like what was going on at that point. And she was watching me play a game and I conceded at full life. The, The opponent hadn't dealt a single point of damage to me and the opponent in fact was just a few points away from dying. She looked at me and she's like, what are you doing? Like, you were winning. But I knew that I had no way of dealing damage for the rest of the game because the opponent who's playing a very powerful control strategy had turned the corner and were in complete control of the game. They'd be able to take out any creatures I played from then on. There would be no chance of me dealing any points of damage. The life total would just be a formality at that point. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you played Soulforge. Wasn't there some degree of that in, in that game? Uh, there was never a point where you could be like, I have 100 life, they have 20, and I know I've lost. 
because there was always like damage direct damage cards and other little trickery and stuff like that so <laughs> the idea of it being so completely locked off is is, is horrible <laughs> <laughs> well those exist in hearthstone but they weren't in my deck <laughs> right so it was really your fault for building a bad deck i see what you're saying absolutely true <laughs> <laughs> man i miss soulforge i think about it all the time <sighs> <laughs> i'm sorry to bring it up one thing you can do to reduce cognitive load in general is having consistency between effects. So you were mentioning each dragon of the same type had the same effect. That's a good step towards that sort of thing where you play a card and you don't necessarily need to read it every time or you can sort of start making mental shortcuts. There was a uh, recent magic set that had a bunch of weird inconsistencies. So for instance, they would have effects that could put creatures into play the thing is, is those effects, you could do it at any time. So in Magic, you can play on your opponent's turn. So if I'm attacking you, you could throw a creature in and instantly just kills my creature. And I had no idea it was coming. What they started doing more recently was putting creatures into play, but they come in exhausted, tapped, which means that you can't do that. You can't ambush my creatures. You can still have the surprise factor of being able to play it on my turn. And there's a lot of benefits to doing that, but you wouldn't be able to do that one particular really feel bad thing. The thing is, they only did that like half the time. <laughs> and by doing it half the time, it's actually <laughs> way worse than doing either of the two other options. And then they would have this mechanic. There's like a subtype of card called snow cards. And some of the cards would say, if you have a snow card, you get this effect. Some of the cards would say, for each snow card, you can get an effect. Some would say, if you have at least X snow cards, you get this effect. Some would say, if you have a snow land, which is a subset of a subset, then you get this effect. And all these different things vastly increase the cognitive load because every time you have one of these cards, you have to be like, wait, is this that particular type? And it's actually even worse than that because now you have to second guess every card that you play. <laughs> the worst example I've seen of this in a published game is, I think it was called Robin Hood and the Merry Men. It was a little indie published game about five years ago, maybe four years ago. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I've seen it, but I haven't played it. It was a Kickstarter game. It wasn't, it wasn't a terrible game. And I, I, I probably, <laughs> because the board game industry is so small, I probably know the people who made it. So sorry, people <laughs> who made it. So you had these dice and the dice had like a success marker and a bunch of other markers. And there were archery contests where you had to meet the number of success markers. There was tricking prison guards where you had to like trick as many as you could, but you didn't have to match all of them. And the ones that you didn't, you got a penalty for. And then there was some third thing where it was like, you had to exceed that number. And every time you exceeded it, you got a point. It was just three very slightly different systems that all otherwise seemed identical so it was like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna roll my dice just like i've done every other turn on these other actions and oh they do something completely different this time okay well now that i've done that i'll go over here and i'll roll my dice and oh you, it's a different system again and it would have been so easy for them to just homogenize the systems and i can see what they were going for they wanted to be like ah yes an archery contest is different to breaking people out of prison is different to robbing someone on the streets but as a result it is uh I, I, probably comprehension complexity more than anything whereas just these like three disparate systems to do essentially identical options a similar example is, um, you know, Cardboard Edison, the people who do the best newsletter on, on well, the second best newsletter <laughs> board games you'll ever read after Fun Problems, the problems of fun. And they have a game called Dubai. And Dubai has three tracks. And again, each one of them activates slightly differently. One of them activates in turn order, worker by worker. One of them activates in turn order, player by player once. And the other one everyone who's on the track at all goes simultaneously. And that one was kind of like a central mechanism of the game. So I could kind of see what they were going for there. But I remember when I was devving that a while back for a publisher, playtesters just came being like, what about if they were all the same? And I completely see where they're going from after playing Robin Hood as Merry Men, because it's just asking the players to do more work for what doesn't really feel like more gain. 
Mm-hmm. Now, there's a bit of a distinction to make between things that are almost identical, like essentially identical, and don't actually give people payoff. Like essentially what you're doing is having four slightly different rule sets that people have to keep track of. And what's the extra payoff? A little bit more theme? It doesn't seem worth the cost. It's not providing four rule sets worth of fun, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's a game, Artemis Project, which is a fabulous dice placement Euro game. The idea with that one is there are sort of different mini games where you're playing the dice, but each one is separate enough that it takes advantage of the different numbers that you could possibly have. But it's also distinct enough that you're going to remember what they are and they're intuitive as well. So it's like, if I put a die here, whatever the number is, that's how many resources I get. Whenever I put a die over here, that's how much of those resources I am bidding on this item. It's very like smooth and intuitive. And so I think if you're trying to get a bit more texture, I think separating them out more actually does you better. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that I think people don't think about is cognitive load in terms of like bookkeeping, busyness, and doing like math and everything. Fiddliness. Yes. Yeah, fiddliness. An example of this came up a little while ago when we were playtesting Cartouche, which is coming up on Kickstarter very soon. Check it out, everyone. Oh, yes. Uh, Exciting. Keep an eye out. This podcast sponsored by Cartouche. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that really impressed me about Cartouche was the effort you put into making scoring so smooth and so quick because you know what's not fun? Playing a fun game and then sitting down to do 20 minutes of math and someone (laughs) says, oh, uh, I I got three more points than you. I win. (laughs) So what did you do to solve that in Cartouche? So this was actually my co-designer, Jeff Fraser. He made a big push for every card that scores points, either scores two, three, five, or I think there's a few sevens and tens, but for the most part, it's two, three, and five. And the reason for that is that you can get your twos and get your threes and pair them up and they're fives and add a five on top and you got 10. So anything that can use basically your, your base five or your base 10 system that humans are so very good at makes scoring way easier, way, way easier. Whereas if we'd had, as, as I was suggesting, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven as, as the points, then suddenly you're left with like, okay, I've got two twos and a four and a three and, a, and you just end up doing all this really obnoxious math where you have to like carry the one and all this. Whereas by making it all two fives and threes, then you can really get those uh points added up quickly wow i'm glad you clarified i almost gave you credit for being a good designer Jeez, that would have been embarrassing <laughs> no the trick is to find other good designers and then uh do what they say <laughs> and then the, the other big thing that i i know that i pushed for was we have very few things that score you points very few things so you obviously get points for these cards that i'm talking about your gold cards you get points for your achievements and i think again they are like five seven ten i think are the numbers there and then you get points for like leftover tokens just because we found it really frustrating when people had leftover tokens and nothing else. We don't have, and also if you had four tiles left over and also if you had half a row completed or anything like that, like there's always lots of opportunities to add points in. And this is a victory point game, which as mentioned, I, I don't typically design, but in this case, I really the game, it really works for it. There's always places that you can put points, but by trimming as many places as you can, then scoring that game is, is like you said, lightning fast. Now, I swear I wrote these notes like, two months ago because of the pipeline that we have for everything but this is very (laughs) convenient timing because i have another big compliment to pay cartouche when talking about cognitive load one thing that can reduce it in, in sort of a sideways way is giving players feedback for their actions because if players receive feedback oh that was a bad choice they can immediately adjust their mental model they've learned something it's stuck in their brain now and now they can adapt from that and similarly if they get rewarded for making a decision immediately then they know to keep doing that thing and that helps them to have focus in the game and cartouche is honestly the best example i've seen of feedback in a board game 
In Cartouche, what happens is it's a polyomino game. Which is a, a Tetris style game for people who don't know. Yes, thank you. And you'll place these tiles on the board. And if you place a tile next to a matching icon on the board, then you will get paid off with a token. You will immediately get that little reward. And you can cash in those tokens in order to get bigger rewards, in order to complete goals that you have. And similarly, if you place tiles in different positions, you can complete these goals. And so as soon as you complete one of those goals, you get points and you immediately get a special ability as well. And on top of that, if you complete different combinations of goals, you will get a super bonus on this uh, <laughs> on this larger scale board. And so it's just feedback on top of feedback on top of feedback to really drive home that, yes, you did this thing. It was awesome. Here's the payoff for doing that awesome thing over and over again. I was very impressed by that. At one point, we should do an episode on designing games without victory points, because this is where a lot of my game design mind is. But uh, that technique that you're talking about is one thing that I really, I think, have, have improved at as a result of designing games without victory points. As mentioned, Cartouche has victory points. So a lot of these things that you're describing give you just direct victory points as well as bonuses. But in a game with no victory points, you kind of have to be like, okay, well, what, what endorphins can we give people? So one is stuff. You know, you do this move right, you get stuff. Cool, you got stuff out of it. Hooray, you, you're playing the game well, you know that because you got a little pile of stuff and people are natural hoarders. And another one is, like you said, a special ability. Hey, you did this move, cool. Now you've got a power that you can use. And these things aren't victory points, but victory points are just the most direct kind of plug into that endorphin part of the brain for game players. Whereas these ones are still plugging into the same area, but much, much more subtly and in a way that builds in a different way, I think. The one thing I'll say on feedback is it needs to be immediate and needs to be clear why they got the reward. <laughs> because uh, otherwise, if it's not connected, then then you're missing that benefit. Yeah, I, I played a prototype God, five years ago now. And I've often thought about it because it was a game of basically setting little traps. So in Nijitsu, one of my games, you can play cards face down and people can steal them. But sometimes when they steal them, it's a trap and it blows up in their face. And you're like, ha ha. This game was, I think it was Roman Senate themed or something like that. And you would give people little cards face down over the course of like maybe two rounds to the table. And then at the end of that second round, everyone would reveal the cards that they got. And sometimes there'd be traps. And it was deeply unrewarding because by that point you've negotiated you know let's say i give you a card as my first move and it's a trap and i'm sitting here being like hey, hey i'm gonna give aj this trap and he's gonna reveal it and realize i tricked him by the time you actually reveal it let's say we've gone around the table twice or three times you've made so many other deals and you've negotiated so many other things and all that by the time you flip it you're like oh okay i got uh three good cards and a trap and you don't remember who gave you that one particular trap. And I'm sitting there being like, where's, where's my payoff? Where's my, I tricked him on dolphins. And you're just like, overall, I got two points. Cool. Let's move on. That immediate feedback is so important. That's a great example. So one thing that we haven't talked about in terms of cognitive load, which I think is a major one, and maybe I'm just more aware of it the most because we play on it so much, is memory. What stuff you're expected to remember. So of the Jelly Bean catalog, there are three games that really heavily like tax your memory. And so the rule sets are relatively simple. One of them especially is one of the simplest games we make, but they have also been described as uh, surprisingly thinky games because you're sitting there trying to remember a sequence or trying to remember a bunch of information. So Dracula's Feast and Neither Mummy are two of our biggest hits. And they are, we used to call them social deduction games. Now we call them logical deduction games because they're basically like Clue or Cluedo where you're trying to work out a set of information. But in this one, you don't have a pen and paper. So you have to like remember what people have done and work out what it means and the inferences of that to then make conclusions and keep that all in your head. So it's this little 10 minute game that's, I just played this on Saturday as well. It's incredibly thinky. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that you can do to reduce that load, if that's not the type of game you want it to be, 
is do things that remove the memory aspect of it or de-emphasize it. Like we said before with the example of having all the cards laid on the table, you technically don't have to look through and think through all those options for which cards you want to buy and which cards will come up next, uh, but you feel like you should. You feel like you have to. And similarly, right. if you do the opposite, then it de-emphasizes it. There's a lot of games I've played that will have hidden scoring, and what happens is people who sit down to play them, they're like, but wait, if I see that you get two points, and then I see you get three points, and then I see you get eight points, then I'll just know what you have. Sure, good luck remembering that. <laughs> you know, If you put behind a player's shield, people will almost always forget. I was playing one of my prototypes, and I did this same exact thing. And this game is predominantly supposed to be like a you know three to six player experience. And I was playing it two player. And the person who I was playing with was like, you know, a, a hardcore gamer and a hardcore game designer. And so he said that exact point. He said, I'm going to remember how many points you have. And I said, okay, sure. And he spent a lot of effort doing it. And you know what he did? He remembered. Because <laughs> you got zero points. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's not that big of a deal if he does it. And you know, if he feels like he'll get a significant strategic advantage of it and he wants to, that's part of the skill horizon. Right. If he wants to take on that cognitive load, he can be rewarded for it, sure. But most people will not be willing or able to do that. The other game that we have that's memory-focused is Meow. Do you want to describe Meow? I'm so bad at describing our games today. <laughs> Keep in mind, I've only uh, played it from description. I haven't read the rule book. <laughs> so uh, Meow is a game where you're all playing as, uh, as cultists, very cute animal cultists, and you're trying to figure out what the rules of the cult are. Everyone at the cult knows some pieces of information that you're supposed to follow, but not everything. And so as you play the game and you see people start to do weird things and try to follow these rules, you're going to start to pick up on things. So maybe someone makes a cough and then goes to try and play a card. You're like, okay, maybe maybe they have to cough when they do that. Or maybe someone will do something strange with their hands or touch the table or bark like a dog. And so you're trying to pick out the actions that they're taking and remember those so that you can follow all the rules of the cult and win by playing a card simply by following all the actions. How to do? Uh, well said. No, great, great description. You're, you're very good at this. You should come work for Jellybean. Um, <laughs> and so Meow, dur during the development process, that went through a lot of changes because we, we worked out that the memory part of it was the fun part. And so we stripped out everything else because the memory part is such a cognitive load in and of itself that we're like, okay, well, we need to reduce all the rest of the cognitive load so this can still be a family weight game while having this memory element. And then on top of that, like you said, one of the examples is bark like a dog. The, the actions that you have to memorize are very, very silly. <laughs> they are often very physical, very silly. And A, this really helps with our family demographic, but B, it makes it easier to remember for two reasons. One is that you're not like, you know, if, if I had to make you memorize the digits of pi, then that's cognitive load on top of cognitive load. Whereas you flap your arms like they're wings, that's very easy to remember. And secondly, by making it silly, it feels less heavy. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, if, if that makes sense. That's a subtle point, but that matters. That, that sort of framing, that matters a lot more than people, I think, generally yeah. speaking, want to give credit for. The biggest things you can do to reduce cognitive load are strip rules, which will always be my advice about everything. Cut as many rules as you can, and this will tie into the next thing I'm going to talk about, which is elegance. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Give people reference cards. If your game doesn't have a memorization aspect, then don't make them memorize the rules of the game. Give them a reference card that says, hey, here's the five actions you can take on your turn. Cool. Now they have that in front of them at all times. They can just look at that. They can basically outsource a part of their brain 
you know, to that card and be like, what do I have to do? Oh, it's right there on this card. I don't have to think about it. Any, anything like that that you can do to basically uh, yeah, let people think less about the tedious stuff, the, uh, what do you say earlier, the, the fiddliness, the upkeep. You only have so much cognitive load that you want to put in your game. So you're going to make sure that you're putting it in the right areas. So strip out cognitive load of, out of every spot of your game that isn't one of those areas. I was having dinner with Eric Lang a few years back and I asked him why in Blood Rage is the power the same as the cost? I was like, that's so, so brilliant. Like, wh why did you do that? And he said, because the simpler I made that part of the game, the more complex I could make other parts. Very well said. Turns out uh, Eric Lang knows what he's talking about. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. And it could have been very easy to have every card have, you know, the cost in one corner, the power in the other. Magic does that. A bunch of other games do that. But by combining them, he freed up that cognitive load and let him put it into other parts of the game. Mm -hmm. And made it more elegant. Yes, absolutely. One thing that you can do for getting a little bit more depth out of a simpler rule set is have symmetrical effects. Because symmetrical effects are the type of thing where more advanced players can take really strong advantage of them. Let's say that you get a small effect. Both players get to draw a card. Well, that might seem like it's not that good because, hey, I'm giving my opponent something. And so newer players can kind of just ignore those effects or think, yeah, whatever, that, that card's garbage, I won't draft it. But then the more advanced players will be able to pick up on, well, wait, we both draw a card, but all your cards are really expensive. My cards are really cheap. If I play this one, I'll get to use my card and kill you before you get to draw your cards. <laughs> this is actually a big part of Providence, one of the big heavy games I'm working on right now. In the There's three eras in Providence, and in the third era, there are a lot of everyone does this action actions. So you have an inventory limit. So if you can do an action that lets everyone, you know, take a new resource and everyone else is full, hey, you've just used a space that theoretically rewards everyone, but you're the only one getting advantage of it. And then right next to that is an everyone sells a particular resource space. If you're the only one who has that resource, you get to sell it and no one else does. And so there's, yeah, it, it's it's written so there's a bunch of those and players always consistently, I'm amazed at how consistent it is. People are always like, oh, I can do this thing and it rewards only me and not you. And they just feel so good. Just gives them a little, little endorphin hit that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, one of my favorite examples is uh, Lanterns. Because in Lanterns, whenever you play a tile, it gives everybody a card. Everyone! You get a card, and you get a card. Look under your seat! It's a card! <laughs> Except if there aren't any cards of that type. <laughs> and so finding ways to like maximize the cards that you get while hosing everybody else, oh, it's, 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 so, it's so smart too. Because the meanest thing you can do in the game is not give someone something for free. <laughs> yeah which makes the game feel really light and really fun and you're constantly getting little bonuses. And it's all positive interactions. Exactly. But it still lets you do things that are functionally being mean to them, but it doesn't feel nearly as bad, does it? So hang on, I appreciate this discussion, but I'm not sure how it ties into elegance. So it's just in that you've got an effect that's very simple that has a, a standard use case that you can use in a way that, that players wouldn't realize right away. Oh, it's, it's lenticular design. Everyone gets it straight away. But exactly. then as you play more, you're like, oh, I can use this really cleverly. Exactly. It's like hiding little layers of heuristics in the game. Gotcha. Similarly, okay, I've got a magic card that I'm, I'm going to tell you what it does. And you with just your game designer brain, I want you to tell me how good this effect would be generally speaking in games. So generally speaking, in the average game. It's great. It's a great <laughs> card. Did I do it? We'll see. There's a time aspect, right? <laughs> uh, so in a game where you have your own deck of cards, this isn't a shared deck, how good would drawing three cards and then putting two cards back on top, how good would that be? Very good. Because it lets <laughs> you plan out your next few turns. So 
It is actually so much better than that. It's insane. That is one of the most powerful cards in all of Magic the Gathering. Not close. Like, like might, really? be, might be top 20 cards of all time. This is just behind the cards that get you like tons and tons of free resources. Up, up there with the, the Black Lotus. Yeah. Yeah, so Black Lotus is definitely above this, but this is this is a really good card. There's a format where Lotus and the Moxes and the like one mana draw three cards where those ones are banned. And this is probably the most powerful card in that format where like only the most nonsensical cards are, don't exist. It's interesting. When I was getting to Magic, I was very interested in like how to get better at Magic and, and all these sorts of things. Magic is a very interesting game to sink your teeth into. One of the things was I would listen to pros talk about good cards. Top 10 lists, right? We all love top 10 lists. Yes. When I would see this card pop up, I'd be like, are you kidding me? This is one of the best cards of all time. I bought it and I played with it and it was fine. It it did what you said. Yeah, I could plan out my turns. Uh, There's also a few interesting edge cases. Like if someone tries to make you discard a card, it's usually like reveal their hand and pick a card to lose. So you can like draw three cards, put two on top. You can hide the card you really want, right? Because then they can't make a discard. So I was like, yeah, you can do stuff like that. But why is it so good? And eventually what I came to realize is it's not the card itself. It's the context of the card. In Magic, there's a lot of effects that can cause you to shuffle your deck. And because in Magic, there's so much variance in it. There's so many different cards that you have in your deck. And because in Magic, there's a lot of destroy a creature cards, which are useless against decks that don't have creatures. There's a lot of like situational edge case cards here. What you can do is you can brainstorm, draw three cards and put the two cards that were literally useless anyway back on top and then shuffle your deck of 50 cards. Well, your deck's huge. You're probably not going to draw them again. It's almost like you drew three cards for one mana, which is the banned card in Legacy. That's why the card is so insanely good. And that's the type of thing where if you just have that effect on the surface, it seems it seems fine. But because of the interactions of other cards, it can be very powerful. So despite Brainstorm being a very low complexity card, very simple to learn how to use, because of the way that you combine other effects in the game with it, you have a lot more uh, possibility space for players to explore and develop interesting strategies. Interesting. Another thing that you can do along those same lines is there's an ability in Magic called Lifelink. And that means whenever a creature does damage, you gain that much life. And by tying that directly to the damage that they're already dealing, that means that cards that modify their attack damage will also modify the ability. If you had a 3-mana 3-3 creature, 3 attack and 3 health, and you just said, when this creature attacks, gain 3 life. That's a very safe design. You always know the um, the ceiling and the floor, right? How good the card could possibly be at its best, the ceiling, and how bad it could possibly be at its floor. So as a designer, it feels like the type of thing that's very safe. By opening it up, you allow players a lot of space to explore different combos and things like that. In fact, that's sort of the basis of all of Carl Chudik's games, like Glory to Rome, where you do tons and tons of busted things because these cards are very open-ended in their design which means you can do crazy things when you combine the effects that's something i really struggle with as a designer i always want to limit everything and like clamp it all down and lock it all down and then my cards are not powerful enough and i have to like slowly open it up whereas i'm trying to trend towards giving players a card that in my mind i'm like this is so broken and overpowered and then you know actually seeing if it is before i make any adjustments Mm -hmm. another thing you can do is Instead of having, this is this sort of goes to the same thing of like opening up space. This is something that really fascinates me. If you're playing something like apples to apples, 
it's I have this card and I combine it with this card. And in Apples to Apples, there's a lot of different cards. So uh, Apples to Apples, people who haven't played it, um, I might have a category like Sticky, and you have five cards in your hand, and you're going to play one of them face down as everyone else. We're going to shuffle them up, reveal them, and I'm the judge, and I'm like, okay, which of these cards most matches Sticky? I think this one, and then whoever played that gets a point. Right, and so because they've got tons and tons of different cards, you have a lot of different combinations, but it's still finite. You're still going to draw the same card after a few games. Whereas if you have a game like Dixit, yes, you are drawing, and for people who don't know, uh, Dixit has a bunch of uh, bizarre, beautiful, abstract paintings on these cards. And what you do is on your turn, you'll play a card face down and give a clue to go along with it. It can be literally anything you want. You can sing, you can dance, you can hum, you can snap your fingers. If you're boring, you, you could can say, say a single words. word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, then everybody else plays a card face down, trying to best match the clue that you gave. You shuffle them up, reveal them. Everyone tries to guess which card you put down. Not the best fit for the clue, but which one they think you put down when you gave the clue. A lot of the game is playing the players. And because you can do anything you want for the clues because it's open-ended, that gives it tons and tons of depth because every time you play with someone, they might see something you didn't. They might use clues in a way that you didn't. There's been a real trend, I think, just in the last few years of games like that. Uh, Wavelength springs to mind. Um... Oh, yeah just one on a scale of one to t-rex is not exactly the same but it's kind of in, in that same category where it's just it's player expression driven rather than uh content driven Ooh, i like that player expression driven rather than content driven write that down people <laughs> <laughs> we should record it and put it on the internet somewhere uh sounds like too much work <laughs> you're right forget it it's gone gone to the winds of time <laughs> Are there any other general things that you think would help people understand how to bring elegance into a game? It's a really difficult topic to just have quick and dirty tips, you know? It's a tricky one, yeah. I'd I'd say abstract games are broadly considered to be the most elegant. Like, of of all the genres, I think uh, abstract games have, generally speaking, the fewest rules and the deepest decision Mm. trees. And I'm trying to, as we've been talking about, I'm trying to pinpoint why that is exactly. And I'm, I'm talking about good abstracts, obviously. Bad abstracts don't do that. <laughs> I, I, I think what abstracts really excel at is giving you a very contained set of rules that you can follow. And then beyond those rules, complete freedom. So for example, in chess, there's six distinct pieces, each of which has their own movement rule. There's a few dumb edge cases, which if chess was designed to go, I'm sure would be cut out. But generally speaking, you, you have a board set up, you have these six pieces with different rules. And then beyond that, there is nothing that you can't do. You know, you, 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 there's no rule saying like, well, hang on, no, you can't actually bring the rook out, uh, you know, all the way to the other side. That's too far. So, you know, there, there's nothing like that limiting it. And so giving people like this big playing field and these distinct pieces and rules has just so much potential. So Shobu is another example. Shobu is in a sense, even simpler. Like there are no piece rules. There's just a single rule of movement and a goal. I know there's something about just giving people like, a very simple amount of stuff and a, and a very clear goal and saying go for it that produces elegance and a lot of depth. I think part of it too might be the sort of win conditions, right? And like there's no resources. The win conditions usually like take this piece or get an X position, uh, which is a very like clear, easily understood thing. And it doesn't require much explanation. A lot of the strategic depth comes from abstract strategies, from manipulating the pieces in different positions. But each of the pieces themselves are typically very simple and it's more the combinatorics that generate the interesting game states there's also a certain amount of freedom that comes with not having a theme to use abstract in the sense of themeless mm. 
when you have a theme, then people are like, well, hang on, why, why can I do this? This doesn't make sense. And so whether consciously or unconsciously, I mean, part of it is that designers love designing rules. We love it. It's really hard to stop designers from adding rules to their game. Uh, I, I, I'm notorious for this as well. When I, when I sit down and design a game, I'm like, okay, and here's the basics, and now here's the rules, and here's the sub-rules, and here's some more rules. And basically, I just it's sort of like what I was saying earlier. I want to stop people from breaking the game, so I preemptively write a whole bunch of rules. As you design more and as you get stronger as a designer, I think you tend to lean towards, okay, rather than you know having rather than saying you can do this, but not this, but not this, but not this, but not this, you sort of put the limitation in the initial rules. So let's, let's use chess as an example. Uh, with a pawn, you can move one space forward, two spaces on your first turn, or attack diagonally. Now that, that's arguably a lot of rules, but within those rules, they're so constrained by themselves that you don't need to add constraints. You don't need to say you can go anywhere, but only up to three spaces or anything like that. Like there's no negative rules really in pawn movement. It's all conveyed in the positive rules. And so I think that if you can have your positive rules have limitations, then you can get rid of what I'm calling negative rules or rules exceptions. And that'll make your game much more elegant because suddenly it's not what can't I do? It's only what can I do? And then everything else is sort of implied to not be allowed. One thing I'm always looking for when I'm trying to design elegantly is how many things can I make this one rule do? Let's use chess slash royal blood as an example. Chess slash royal blood? <laughs> chess slash royal blood, yeah. In the initial royal blood, you would move and then movement would not be attack. Whereas we shifted it to a thing where when you're moving, you are attacking. They are the one, the one motion. And it's just a more elegant rule set. And that's also the rule of chess. In chess, wherever you move to, you're also attacking that space. You don't have to line your castle up next to a knight and then attack it. You attack it by moving. The moving is the attack. It's all one inherent movement. And that's a big part of the elegance. What, what's that saying you like? Smooth and simple, one, one, one <laughs> quick, simple motion? <laughs> I think about that all the time. Ever since my dentist said it, it's been in my head. <laughs> and so, yeah, the more things... I mean, I bring up this example every single episode. We're actually contractually obliged to. In Caverna Cave to Cave, when you clear out the rubble, it becomes a room that you can purchase. Stuff like that is so nifty and so elegant. So yeah, whenever you're looking to make your game more elegant, it's the same with screenwriting, actually. It's see what you can combine. Do you need a best friend character and separately a love interest and separately a mentor and separately a father and separately a cousin? Or could the cousin be the best friend and the father be the love interest? Probably not. But hey, you've t cut two characters out just by doing that. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really funny. You didn't even acknowledge it. I thought it was funny. I just, uh, <laughs> my, my, it, you know, what? My, my favorite jokes, I've said this before, my favorite jokes are the types that don't make me laugh. It's the type that makes me smirk slightly and go, hmm. That was clever. <laughs> clever. That's what I'm going for when I'm making a joke. I'm going for a silent acknowledgement of it. <laughs> so was it more satisfying just now when I when I laughed or was it more satisfying before? <laughs> Way more satisfying. you got to remember, I'm, I'm somewhere on the spectrum. So I, I, don't, I don't read stuff that's subtle. I, I need that really big, loud, uh, oh, yes, I did good. I, I need my victory points, man. I need my victory points. I'll just give you a round of applause every time now. That's all I ask. Is that so much to ask for? So what would you say are some of the most elegant games that you can think of? Top of the list, like you said, for abstract strategies, which feel like they're cheating, is, uh, is Shobu. <laughs> I, think, I think Shobu is a phenomenally elegant game. It's a classic example of, of you know, five minutes to learn a lifetime to master. Yes, which maybe may even the tagline of it. And for once, I actually agree, <laughs> honestly. I think that Airland and Sea, I was just talking about this on Twitter because we posted it as a recommendation in the Fun Problems column. In, in the newsletter, which you subscribe to, by the way, if you're not. It's an excellent newsletter you that comes out once a month. 
And in it, I recommend games and I recommended Airline and Sea because it's brilliant. And the more I think about that game, the more I think that might be the best designed game I've ever played. Oh, interesting. It is extremely elegant. Have you played it? I have. I, uh, I've i never played the published version, but I played the prototype for many years because I'm fancy. Do you, do you want to describe the game for listeners who don't know it? I would love to. <laughs> um, so it's an 18 card game, not published by... Buttonshy. Buttonshy. <laughs> but the idea of the game is you shuffle the 18 cards, you deal six to your opponent, six for yourself, and they are six set to the side. And what you do is each turn, you will either play a card adding to one of the three different theaters of war, the titular air, land, or sea, and the cards will either have the face of them, which will have a special ability and a numerical strength, and those can only be played to their matching theater of war. So if you have ships, then they'll have to be played to sea. Or you can play them face down, and on the back of it, it's a, typically a weaker number, but you can play that anywhere. That's almost the entire game. Like, there's, yeah. a, there's a few minor things that I'm leaving out. But that's basically the game. And the big thing is, instead of playing a card, you can concede the round. And the earlier you concede, the fewer points your opponent gets. If you wait until everyone's played out all their cards, their entire hand, then you're going to give huge points to your opponent. And if you concede early, you give almost nothing to them. Even if you have a bad hand in the game, it's really not that big of a deal. The key to the game is pressuring people into conceding when you have a bad hand just by bluffing them or by coaxing them into playing more cards so that they commit more and you can get more points from it or knowing when to concede early if you're if things are going south. And that dynamic mixed with the brilliant strategy of just these simple card effects, uh, it's just off the charts. One big aspect of elegance that we could probably do a whole episode about is this idea of content versus structure. Is this, is this something that I've talked about with you before? Is this something you're familiar with? No, but it sounds interesting. So I'll, I'll give a very brief rundown because I know that we're approaching the end of the episode. The, the simplest way to put it is not 100% accurate. There are exceptions. Don't at me. <laughs> the structure of a game is what's in the rule book. The content of the game is what's on the cards. So Air, Land, and Sea is an interesting example because you describe the rules very simply, but that's not where the game is. The game's on the card. Each of the 18 cards has its own unique ability that does a different thing. And so you can teach the rules of the game very, very quickly. But to actually really master that game, you have to learn the content of the cards and be like, ah, okay, I don't have the two of air and I, so he might and I'll let him do this so I need to play around that I don't know if it's a factor in elegance abstract games are sort of interesting in that they have no content as a rule they are entirely structured there is nothing beyond the rules of the game with an abstract because content is stuff that comes out during the game that you might never see whereas structure is stuff that you need to know to play the game so with chess everything is structure with shobu everything is structure and the only quote-unquote content that you would even have in chess would be like what the individual pieces do but that is in every game so that counts as structure does that make sense as a, as a concept yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So one thing you can do to make your game much easier to learn but add a lot of depth to it is by making it an extremely simple structure and then moving all the complexity onto content. So Meow, which we talked about earlier, the rules of Meow are deal out the cards. If you follow all, all the cards in people's hands, you win. And that's pretty much it. But there's, you know, between the two versions and the promo cards, there's something like 150 different individual cards. We deliberately packed that with as many cards as we could because we didn't want anyone to try to memorize them because that would break the game. And so you can't go in like knowing the cards and that defeats the point of knowing the cards. I'm thinking now a big aspect of elegance is a very streamlined structure and allowing the content to be where the complexity comes from. It's interesting because I think you could make an argument that the opposite could also be very strong as well. If you have no content but all structure and you just learn the structure and then you just have this thing that you already understand completely. That makes the game simple but not necessarily deep. Sure. 
I mean, n- neither of those necessarily make the game deep, right? No, I mean, like, Meow's not a deep game, but it, it, I would still consider it a very elegant game. I would consider either system having the ability to generate a deep game. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that it's exclusive, but um, the trick to a good abstract is to have that depth come despite the simple structure and the lack of content. Like, that is a, <laughs> that is an accomplishment. I think putting in those terms helps me to articulate in my own head, at least, though, what makes a game elegant, because the most elegant game that I can think of is Blockus. I didn't necessarily have the have the words in my head as to why it was so elegant, but I think it's because the structure and the content are both incredibly light, incredibly simple. The rules for Blockus are three sentences, and <laughs> the, the content of Blockus is just different Tetris polyomino pieces. And the depth to that game, the amount of like replayability and strategic horizons, is huge. One way that you can actually... And now that we've got into examples, I'm, I'm pulling out all the content that I didn't have earlier. <laughs> One thing you can do to make a game incredibly deep without necessarily adding a whole bunch of overhead is adding a spatial element. Now, the trick is you can't, you don't want to have a bunch of rules exceptions, but I think this is what all the abstract games have in common, that they have a really clearly defined spatial element. And as soon as anything is spatial, then a single rule adds a bunch of combinatorics because, uh, is that the right word? Did I, did I say it right? Yep, yep. <laughs> so, for example, let's invent an abstract game. It's played on a 4x4 grid, and you have a, you have a piece, so a 5x5 grid, you have a piece in the very center, and you can move one space orthogonally or diagonally. You now have eight options for your first turn, but one rule has covered every single one of those options. You can move a space. Bam, that's it. As soon as you have uh, spatial aspects or area aspects, then suddenly you've added a bunch of possibility with very, very, very simple, discrete rules. The other way you can do it, now that I think about it too, is with words. So after you've gone through your elegant games, I was going to list some of mine, and they were going to be Dixit, Codenames, Decrypto, Just One, because these are all structurally very, very, very simple games. Like Just One is dirt simple, couldn't be, almost couldn't be simpler. But the incredible depth comes from, like I was saying earlier, the player expression-driven rules of the game. And the rules of that are, with Just One, it's just one word. With code names, it's just one word. And maybe you need like half a page of which words are and aren't allowed. Dixit is even easier. Anything's allowed. I, I think maybe with the exception of like in-jokes. But as soon as you go into language, yeah, language and spatial elements are the two ways where you can be like, hey, here's an enormous range of possibilities with a very concise rule set. Definitely. Those are all on my shortlist as well for the most elegant games. I also have to give shout out to The Resistance, which is an insanely elegant game. <laughs> So yeah, no, that one, that one's good. Uh, Mafia or the Werewolf are a little less elegant, but they provide a much more uh, rich experience. I think a lot of people find. So if you look at, at Dixit, it has a light structure and light content, and a lot of the depth of the game comes from player-driven content, right? Uh, I think Dixit has actually a lot of content because the deck of cards is content. Like that's the main thing driving the variety. Sure, but you could say, like, after three plays, I've seen all the cards in the deck and I'm starting to see repeats, right? Ah, yes. So most people have half a dozen Dixit expansions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, Dixit is constantly releasing new content to the point where they have, what, 15 expansions or something crazy? Sure, but I mean, I played the base game of Dixit and I played it, like, I don't know, 30 times or something like that before I'd even felt like I was reaching that point because of what players bring to the table. Absolutely. The other game that I'll mention as a really elegant one is uh, Circle the Wagons, which is another 18-card game. As soon as you do a really effective 18-card game, man, you are you are 
batting a home run. I don't know how baseball terms work. You are ho- ho- hooping a home base with uh, with your elegance if you can make an 18-card game really powerful. And Circle the Wagons, 18 cards, so much content. Those cards are jam-packed full of content, but there's only 18 of them, and I've played that game a dozen times, and I will play it dozens more. I love that game. Really elegant, simple little game. I've played it off of your recognition. It is very interesting. <laughs> what, a, what a backhanded compliment. <laughs> 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 it's it's good. I, I it's not the type of game that I personally enjoy, but I still own it because it is that interesting. Because it's good. I see. Not like I, I don't know if I can give it a better compliment than that. And also, it's it's ten bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, are we allowed to have fun yet, AJ? Is that is that permitted at this stage? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love fun. What is your favorite light YouTube series? So like if you're if you're thinking like a comedy series or or shorts or something like that, I mean there is no competition, and anyone who doesn't answer this, I worry for them. Uh-oh. Pitch meeting, oh my goodness, pitch meeting <laughs> is the best thing on YouTube. I I've watched all of them probably twice at this point. The concept is that a guy plays both a screenwriter and a, and a executive, and he pitches actual films. I just watched this morning Game of Thrones season eight, and he's like, "Yeah, we're gonna do this." He's like, "Oh, isn't that a terrible idea?" And he's like, "Ah, yeah, we're gonna do it anyway." Oh my goodness, it's incredible! I cannot recommend pitch meeting strongly enough. It's my favorite thing, possibly on all of YouTube. If you watched Game of Thrones, <laughs> you will die of laughter from that sketch. Oh, so good. He is also the best example I've ever seen of catchphrase humor. Catchphrase humor is normally reviled, but he makes these like I laugh out loud every episode at least once or twice. And a lot of the time, it's from a, it's from a line he said more than 150 or 200 times at this point. I've heard this line over and over again, and it still makes me laugh every episode in new context every time. Ryan George is an absolute genius. Uh, yeah, pitch pitch meeting cannot recommend strongly enough. Is it really that hard to catch for his humor? It always seemed super easy, barely an inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Let, let me change my reaction. <laughs> See, now I know that you really liked it. <laughs> what about you? So mine isn't as good as that. <laughs> uh, that, that, is, that is definitely better. But I'm answering not like of all time. I'm answering of what right now what I'm into. Have you ever seen Toby Maguire in the MCU YouTube channel? No, I've never heard of this. All they do is they take shots from the original three Spider-Man movies and they <laughs> splice them into Marvel movies. So it, it's like... The Battle of New York in the first Avengers movie. But in every scene, it's Tobey Maguire delivering pizza and like riding his bike <laughs> through the busy streets getting bombed out. <laughs> or you know how he does photography, right? It's like Tom Holland's prom night and he opens the door and instead of the plot twist that happens at that moment, you see Tobey Maguire standing there. He's like, hi. <laughs> and he's super uncomfortable. And then he's like taking pictures of him for his prom. He's like, yeah, yeah move, move over that way. <laughs> Oh, it's just, it's so good. I'll have to check it out. It sounds great. So now we have a teaser for next episode. And I've decided something. Since this is our 10th episode, we're going to start taking the show seriously now. Oh, do we have to wear pants? So we're not wearing pants. I don't think my teasers were very teasy before. Hit me, hit me up. My teaser for next episode is I'm going to finally do my Faria rant. And I'm going to tell you how my nemesis ruined my favorite game, and how today I have realized it was the correct decision to make. Ooh. Uh, I'm also going to up my teasing. Uh, Your dingus, your silly sausage, your Sasquatch. 
Yeah. Do you feel teased? I do. I do. That's why I'm not laughing because I'm not enjoying this at all. I, I see. I see. Wait. Hey, no, that means that you do love it, doesn't it? It does. I'm getting mixed messages here. So that is all for this episode of Fun Problems. Uh, tune in next time to hear about how AJ became a farrier and lost all his hawks and then eventually uh, found a nemesis. That's what I got out of that, right? I'm, I'm interpreting that correctly. <laughs> More or less. Sounds like you're listening very closely. <laughs> <laughs> and we will be back in two weeks' time with that. In the meantime, keep on grooving and hopping and bopping and jiving. If you miss any of those, you are not allowed to listen anymore. That's the new rule. Oh, man. So strict. Episode 10. <laughs> things get serious. <laughs> uh, that's all for now. I'm Peter C. Haywood. I'm AJ Brandon. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. We did it!